following is a recording of a sermon given at All Saints Lutheran Church in Ottawa, Canada. For additional messages and more information, visit allsaintslutheran.ca. So this morning we're getting back to what I've called the calibration series. And uh, the, the metaphor that I'm using is with normally with fine instruments or even not so fine instruments. Um, I don't know if, if this will, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but you know if some of you use a scale um, on a regular basis to, to check yourself out, check your weight. Well, how do you know the scale's accurate? You would have to get, in order to calibrate your scale, you'd have to get some weights that have been officially stamped with the with the weight, then you put them on the scale, and there's a little, usually there's, uh, there would be buttons or a, a thing that you turn so that it's actually representing the, the right weight. Now, maybe for some of you, you don't really want to know, uh, but on the other hand, you might find, a, a, you might be pleasantly surprised that maybe your scale is actually over overweighting you. You know what I mean? And so instruments need to be calibrated so that they're correct. I, when I was preparing for this, I was looking up this concept of calibration. They have a tool to, to make sure your tape measure is, is correct. You buy a tape measure at the hardware store, you just assume it's correct. But it might be a little bit off that those things are printed. And so it, it, when you're dealing with certain measurements that have to be absolutely correct, you've got to make sure that the tools you're using are aligned properly or calibrated. And so uh, our lives are the same way. As we live through life and we get bumped around uh, by life circumstances, it's easy to get off kilter. And we need to recalibrate. We need to be readjusting. And so... Uh, we're in a, a day today especially, uh, and I was mentioning earlier, we're, we've been going through things this past two years that most of us or all of us have never experienced before. This is all new to us. In fact, there are government policies in place that have, and I'm not talking about just what happened this week, but the types of health orders and mandates that we've had, these have never happened before in the history of the world. And now we even had a situ- we've had a situation this week in our city where our prime minister used a law that's never been used before. It was a, a it was a redoing of an older law, um, but we are in uncharted territory, and that's one of the reasons why it's very difficult for people to understand what's going on and how to respond to it because it's all so new. And that's after two years of being bumped around and, 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 and struggling. And of course, some people have been sick and some of us have lost loved ones. Um, and, and again, we've experienced things with school, with work, with shopping and so on that we've never encountered before. So how do we know what's right and what's wrong? Now, as, as I was preparing to, to come up to, to share this talk this morning, um, I got this picture of of lines of people and one people some people are on one side some people are on the other and I'm not just talking about what the images that we've seen on Parliament Hill of actual lines facing each other but it's that sort of it's been that sort of thing in society 
um, for a long time, I've been so grieved, so I cannot tell you how grieved I am with the ever-increasing polarization in our society, and that's before COVID, and the whole COVID situation's made that worse. And so I had this image in my mind of these two lines of people facing each other, and they're both yelling at each other, liar! One side saying liar, and the other side saying back liar. And so wherever you're getting your information from, it's usually they're representing a side, and they're calling the other, saying to the other side, liar. And how in the world are we expected to figure out what's true? When um, I, I try to look at both sides of things, not just this situation, but in, 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 I, in most situations, I really, really try. I have such a passion for truth. Um, and I, I really know, want to know what's going on. I want to know, in our, my family, you know, we have a big family and there's all sorts of opinions and things that happen. And, you know, we had, used to have little children and, you know, they started, they started. How do you figure out what's really true so that you can raise your children properly? How do we figure out what's really true so we could relate to our, our neighbors, our friends, our, our, our family, our extended family properly? How do we know what's true so that we can represent our Lord properly? And there are too, so many opinions. And I've been, I'll just say it this way, I've been really bothered by how some people call for unity because their version of unity is, oh, can't we just get along? Which, which is saying, let's forget about all the issues. Let's not deal with any of them. And let's just hold hands and sing Kumbaya. But that doesn't help because there are there's real things going on. There's real injustices going on. And again, I'm not just talking about the the COVID years. God's, we've been called by God in the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations, teaching people everything the Lord taught us. And the Lord didn't just say, be good little boys and girls and behave yourself. We, uh, it was read earlier, I wasn't going to touch on it, but we're supposed to be the salt of the earth. That means we're supposed to, have, we're supposed to be distinct. We're supposed to have our understanding from God and then that's probably going to mean we're going to make every, like some of everybody upset because the world's out of whack. Talk about calibration. The world's in need of alignment because it's out of alignment with God. And if we're just going to be tossed to and fro by this new source or that new source, wherever you are on the spectrum, if what's happening is we want to know, we want to be on the right team. And so then we align ourselves with these spokespeople because we, we feel like they must be saying the right thing. So few of us actually try to find out what's really going on and do the necessary research so that when we open our mouths, we are speaking truth. If we don't have access to what's really going on, this issue and other issues, we should keep our mouths shut. And we should also be careful about our hearts we watch a news report, and that's the reality of the world. This book is supposed to be our window into the reality of the world. Well, then people say, well, if that's true, then we cut ourselves off from everything else. No, this book equips us to live effective, godly lives in every way possible. Informed Christians should be the leaders in the society, and I don't mean politically necessarily, but we should be the leaders in society to help 
the poor sheep of people out there who are without a shepherd and help them understanding what is good, what is right, and what is true. We have been assigned that by God. And yet the church has been so silent in these past two years. More concerned that we, we keep unity, leave our differences out of, out, outside, and don't attempt to really try to find what the truth is. And I'm not saying I know what that is, but I know where the source is. And it's my job before God to call us back to the source so that we could be the people that God wants us to be. And that's what this calibration series is all about. The last thing we looked at um, before I was away is um, we spent um, a week on Saul, the first king of Israel, and he was a king like all the other nations. And we saw what happens when people want leaders that are like everybody else. And often they start well, but it leads to disaster. And we saw a life that just spiraled out of control and went deeper and deeper into darkness. Because we see in Saul um, a man who represents all human beings who have done this, where they refuse to, to stick to what God has told them to do and cause great murderous trouble. It has, it's always been this way and is still true today. And yet... In contrast to that man was the man after God's own heart. God's true pick of a godly king. Perfect? No. Humble? Godly? Yes. And we see through David what it's like to be a true godly man. And and to think that he came into power in the midst of serving the murderous, nearsighted, evil King Saul. And in the midst of of his, his murderous jealousy, God prepared David to be the greatest, the second greatest king of Israel. The first greatest king of Israel is the Lord Jesus, who is called Son of David. And so with David... He brought the kingdom of Israel to a place of stability and power. And it was on that foundation that his son Solomon became king. Solomon started off very, very well. I'm reading 1 Kings chapter 4, verses 20 to 34. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand of the sea. That's a reference to the promise to Abraham that that we would not be able to count his descendants. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen and 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl, for he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates from Tifsa to Gaza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates, and he had peace on all sides around him. And Judah and Israel lived in safety, from Dan even to Beersheba, that's from the, the very north to the very south, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon. That's an ex- under, everyone under their own vine and fig tree 
is a, uh, a way of speaking about safety and security and prosperity. Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And these officers supplied provisions for King Solomon and for all who came to King Solomon's table, each one in his month. They let nothing be lacking. Barley also and straw for the horses and swift steeds they brought to the place where it was required, each according to his duty. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. So that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all people of the east and all the people of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezrahite and Heman, Calcol and Darda, the sons of Mahol. And his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs. So the book of Proverbs is only a sample. And his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that's in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. And then in 1 Kings 10 verse 21 we read, All King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver. Silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. The the only thing missing from these descriptions is, and they lived happily ever after. And we don't read that because they didn't. So what we're going to do now is we're going to look at Solomon's downfall from 1 Kings 11. And then we're going to go back a paragraph or two and see what led to the downfall. So this is 1 Kings 11, 9 to 13. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice and you've not kept my covenant and my statutes that I've commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen." And so what ended up happening was because Solomon turned from the Lord, his kingdom was going to be split into two. In the south, basically one tribe, the tribe of Judah, would continue to belong to David's dynasty. David, then his son Solomon, and his son, and then his son, and his son, until a few hundred years later when they would be exiled to Babylon. And that dynasty continues because the Lord Jesus is a descendant of David. The north, which had several tribes in it, became its own kingdom, sometimes called Israel, sometimes called Ephraim. So that's the northern kingdom as opposed to the southern kingdom. So because of Solomon's disobedience to God, the kingdom would become fragmented. And so realize it went from one king's rule about 40 years of great prosperity and peace like it had never been heard of and has rarely happened in the history of the world the wisest man who's ever lived 
And yet because he turned away from God, it all collapsed. But what happened? What was it that caused Solomon to turn away from God? So this is the same chapter I just read, starting at verse 1. So this actually comes before the description of his downfall. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, which was one of his first wives. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon is a very important line. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord, his God, as was the heart of David, his father. Remember, when David sinned, he repented. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David, his father, had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Hamosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Moloch, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. So Solomon slide away from the Lord and his ways was in direct disobedience to the words in Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 to 17. God said this through Moses. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself lest his heart turn away nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Solomon did all these things and it got him and the whole nation into big, big trouble. Now, while I don't think anyone here can relate to Solomon's extravagance, not to mention 700 wives and 300 concubines, that's besides the point. Failure to stay true to God's word will always lead to trouble. Yet there's a, dynam- there's a dynamic illustrated here that's instructive for us all, no matter how many horses or spouses we may have. And that is, like Solomon, we all have a tendency to compromise for that which we love. We all have a tendency to compromise for that which we love. As we read in 1 Kings 11 verse 4, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. When we love someone or something, whether they are good or bad, our hearts are drawn towards them or it. The danger of this may be more obvious when we love something illegitimate, 
But it's not the nature of the person or thing that leads us down the path of compromise. It's the love we have for it or him or her or them. This is why Jesus teaches in Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot, cannot be my disciple. Now, you may have heard explanations of this extreme statement, explanations such as he didn't actually mean hate. It's that our love for him, for Jesus, should be so great that our love for others, even family, should seem like hate by comparison. I don't know if you heard that before, but um, I don't think that really captures what Jesus is saying here. If it did, it would beg the question, how much more are we to love him than love others? For, it, for that to meet that standard that he's calling for. Is it lots more? Lots and lots more? How much more? Now, I understand the typical degree of love explanation, since it should be abundantly clear that he doesn't mean we're actually to hate our family members. If he told us to love our enemies, how much more are we to love those closest to us? And Paul writes in Ephesians 5.25, for example, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So he's he's not contradicting Jesus. There's something else going on. Why did Jesus say what he did? So if the Lord didn't really mean hate, what did he mean? Well, something else the Lord said might help. Luke 16, 13, he says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. So contrary to what some may think, money in this case is not evil in itself. It's the love of money. That's the root of all evil. Paul says the same thing in 1 Timothy. Understanding what the Lord means by hating father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters is found in properly understanding this word hate, the way it's being used here. Now, we tend to think of hate as an emotion of disgust, which it can be, especially in English. I'm sure we all here have feelings about certain foods, for example whether we've learned not to say I hate such and such. That's what we teach our children. But you know what I'm talking about, if you know what I'm talking about. So while hate may include disgust, that's not really what it's all about. Hate is actually a couldn't care less kind of response. Hate doesn't have, doesn't have to have emotions attached to it. Hate is expressed in neglect. In the context of the much-quoted love your neighbor as yourself in Leviticus 19, verse 18, we discover there what hate is, which is neglecting to speak frankly to our neighbors about serious issues in their lives. Let me read that. This is Leviticus 19, 17 and 18. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So when we don't call people to what is right, and we just let them go down the path of destruction with their evil that they are doing, that's called hating them. 
by neglecting them and not caring enough to speak truth to them, we are hating them, not loving them. So let's get our bearings. We're talking about what went wrong with King Solomon. We saw that he was led astray due to his love of foreign women. This love caused him to compromise by worshiping the false gods of the women he loved. From there, I turn to Jesus' words. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And then we defined hate as neglect. So then is Jesus saying that unless we neglect our loved ones in our own lives, we cannot be his follower? Not really. But here it is. When allegiance to him clashes with allegiance to others, what are we going to do? Are we going to be like Solomon, who out of love for his wives turned his back on God and his word? Or will we choose to disappoint the ones we love and follow the one whom we claim to call Lord? Where does our allegiance lie? Are we putting the Lord and his word first or are we caught like Solomon between conflicting loves? We need to make sure that our hearts are calibrated to the Lord Jesus and his word. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that your heart for us is so pure and so generous. Lord, you are also so patient with us. You watch us being drawn to other loves. And yet you speak to us, you call us, and you wait for us. Lord, show us how we've put love for family, for church, for self, for other things ahead of our love to you. Show us, Lord, where our loving of other things is drawing us away from you. And have mercy on us, Lord, and draw us back. That you might be first in our lives. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For additional messages and more information, please visit us on the web at allsaintslutheran.ca Thank you.